Welcome to the Talks on Law California MCLE podcast. Interviews with leading attorneys, professors, and judges on important and thought-provoking legal topics. And now for the interview. In our society, when things go truly sideways, when something bad is happening, we're expected to put our trust in the police, to have confidence in them to uphold justice, law, and order. But what happens when a police officer makes a terrible mistake, or when a cop is simply not up to the high standards that we require? Today we'll be talking about when law enforcement breaks the law and policing the police. Hello and welcome to Talks on Law. I'm Joel Cohen. Joining us today remotely, we have the woman who actually wrote the book on police law. Rachel Harmon is a law professor at UVA. Rachel, welcome to Talks on Law. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I mentioned in the intro, you've recently written on this topic and it's not a a skinny novel, is it? (laughs) No, it isn't. It's about 950 pages. Why don't we start with the challenge? Police officers have enormous power, enormous ability to do good, to to help save our lives and protect our, our families and homes. But with that power, they also have the ability to abuse it. What is so challenging about regulating uh, police in this country? I mean, if you think about the police as one institution that we use to try to generate public safety and public order, especially when we need to do so forcibly or when we think we need to do so forcibly, but we don't always need to put hands on bodies and we don't always need to make arrests or do the other course of activities that police do. And in some ways, that's the real challenge of policing, deciding when the state's commands need that kind of enforcement, when they don't. And because of the authority to do that kind of thing, um, there's a lot of opportunity to be unfair, to be corrupt, to be abusive, as well as to do the things that we hope to achieve with using police. Professor, one of the reasons why we're having this conversation, and I suspect one of the reasons why you wrote your book, is the incredible scrutiny that, or the light that is shining on police because of horrific abuses that have come to light in recent times and the perceived oppression of of minority groups. Is this something that's new in America? It isn't new. It's true that there's a lot of attention right now to the problems of policing and especially the ways in which police contribute to racial oppression and racial injustice. But that is not a new problem in policing. Almost as soon as departments were created in this country in the mid 1800s, there was concern about the way that departments were treating African-Americans and immigrants and the racism that policing contributed it to. So there's no question that that problem is not new. There are cycles in policing in which we pay attention or don't pay attention to the problems, but the communities that suffer most at the hands of the police have always been aware of these problems. If anything, now more of America is seeing some of the problems in policing firsthand through video recordings of the police. It seems like quite a challenge when you you create a group that's there to enforce the laws, and then how do you regulate that group? Do you have to create a separate police for the police? It depends how you think about it. The police are not magical creatures. They don't simply exist. We create the police through law. If we didn't create the police, if we didn't authorize what the police do, then what the police 
did would be crimes. When the police arrest you, it would be kidnapping. Um, when they use force against you, it would be assault. We allow policing through the law. We make exceptions to existing laws for the police. And that means we govern the police. So the question of whether we can police the police, the question is, is really how effectively we're going to govern these people we're giving authority to and what authority we should be giving them. Why don't we take a quick look at at the regulatory uh, framework, I suppose, in place, at the laws in place that enable us to police the police. At some level, the Constitution is always at play. So maybe we could talk about, you could give us a quick overview on that, as well as what other legal avenues we as a society have for regulating the police. If you ask most lawyers or law students or actually police officers, what is the law that governs the police? They're going to cite the Fourth and Fifth Amendment, the Fourth Amendment prohibitions against unreasonable seizure and the Fifth Amendment, as interpreted by Miranda, which uh, regulates interrogations. Those are important. So the, in particular, the Fourth Amendment, um, which governs arrests, it governs searches and surveillance. It also governs the use of force. When we think about a lot of the problems in policing, when police... When when we talk about criminal prosecutions of the police, when we talk about uh, uh, civil damages actions against the police, we're often talking about um, arguing that they violated constitutional rights with respect to the Fourth Amendment. Not always, but often. Of course, that's not the only law governing the police, but it is really, really important law. And we enforce it in a variety of ways. We have the exclusionary rule, we have criminal prosecutions, we have damages actions, we have suits against police departments. And when people talk about policing the police, they're often talking about how rigorous that constitutional law is and how effective those remedies are. But beyond all that, there's the state law that authorizes what police do and state remedies that help address policing when it goes awry and local governance of the police. Most policing is local and it's governed by municipalities, which fund it and hire and fire chiefs and decide what the police department should be doing in the community. In your analysis, is the, the state and local, is that where the rubber is actually meeting the road? Often, yes. So for years, we've focused so much in academia and also in, in popular culture on the constitutional law and constitutional remedies that we didn't pay enough attention to the way that localities and states were actually governing the police, were authorizing police behavior. That's really shifted. If you look over the last couple, just the last couple of years, there is this new attention to the role that states play in regulating the police and how communities could choose anew how they want to make public safety, considering civilianizing some aspects of policing or looking to other actors to do some of the things that police now do. One of the areas that's, if not the area that's garnered the most criticism of the police is their their use of force. You mentioned how the police are necessary or helpful when, when we need something actually done or when we need hands laid on people. But it's that very power when misapplied that can be so horrific. Why don't we talk about the restrictions constitutionally first on police use of force? Are there any? 
The Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures, and the use of force is a seizure under the Fourth Amendment. So when police officers use force against somebody, they must comply with the reasonable seizure requirement. That's conversation about probable cause and reasonable suspicion? Probable cause and warrants or an exception to the warrant requirement is how we measure reasonableness when we're talking about searches or other activities uh, like arrests. But when we're talking about the manner in which the seizure is carried out, then we don't go to probable cause and warrants because that doesn't make any sense. We have to ask, well, how do we know if the manner that the police officer is doing this legitimate activity is legitimate? And to answer that question, we go to the base requirement of reasonableness. And the Supreme Court tells us or tells lower courts to balance the interests of the government against the intrusion on the individual in deciding what's reasonable. But in establishing that balance, they've been pretty generous to the government. Yeah, that sounds pretty vague. It sounds like, sounds to me like use your judgment. Well, it's use your judgment and then have courts assess what you've done using their judgment. Courts aren't supposed to exercise 2020 vision. They're supposed to recognize that police make decisions under changing circumstances, that they have a difficult job. So what constitutes reasonable use of force in the Supreme Court's case law, which considers whether somebody is resisting or fleeing or threatening the officer or others, that reasonableness and analysis allows police to use especially a lot of non-deadly force. In the deadly force context, the court is a little more restrictive. You can't use deadly force against a threat that is not of serious bodily harm or death or against somebody who is fleeing just a non-dangerous crime. Well, yeah, why don't we talk about those separately? So how about use of non-lethal force? You know, I'm fortunate enough not to have been violently arrested, but I, I watch plenty of TV. When you see an arrest and the person is slapped in handcuffs and slammed against the wall, you know, is that reasonable? It seems unnecessary to slam the person against the wall. Is that a cause of action there? Not usually. Under federal case law, a lot of circuits would call that de minimis force and would say that there is no constitutional violation there, even if it's not necessary. The courts don't use necessity as the measure of reasonableness, or at least not the minimum force necessary as a measure of reasonableness. And that is one reason why a lot of low level, you know, right now we're very focused on deadly force and with good reason, but non-deadly force is far, far more common. It injures many, many people, and it is far less thoroughly regulated. The case law is pretty permissive with respect to non-deadly force. Certain uses of weapons, so if you start to get into tasers against passive resistance, then the courts get a little bit more uh, aggressive. But in terms of that kind of regular, old, unnecessary, harmful, and alienating force, you're not going to get a lot of a remedy in the Fourth Amendment. Prior to your current law professorship, you worked in the Justice Department and, and while there in the Civil Rights Division. Am, am I right? Yeah, I prosecuted uh, federal civil rights crimes in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division. And did you have, you know, did you have to deal with cases involving, you know, excessive force or police uh, assault or police abuse? 
Yes, in federal law in particular, so the federal criminal civil rights statute has a very high intent requirement. It's willfulness. You'll often see it talked about in the media because it makes it difficult to bring federal civil rights charges against officers. But it does permit the federal government to intervene to prosecute local, state, federal police officers who use intentionally use too much force against an arrestee. So I said, you know, throwing someone up against a car might not count, but kicking a handcuffed suspect once he's under control, that certainly would be excessive force and it would be prosecutable uh, by the federal government. It just seems really problematic to me that the definition is is so loose and that the law seems to allow for a certain amount of roughhousing by the police. Yeah, so the less force that's involved, the more permissive courts are about or the more resistant courts are to policing the line. You know, they don't want to get in the business of second guessing every slap and punch. And that means that the Fourth Amendment is not an effective check. It's one of the reasons why we should be looking elsewhere to regulate that kind of force. I mean, just because the Fourth Amendment permits it doesn't mean communities have to allow it. It doesn't mean states have to authorize it. And it doesn't mean that we have to accept it as a standard part of policing. I think that For so long, we looked to constitutional law to remedy the problems in policing that we forget that the fact that the Constitution permits something doesn't mean that we have to allow it. And how about with deadly force? The law here is the most restrictive and courts will take a a more critical look, yet it's still very challenging to successfully bring claims against police for deadly force. Maybe let's start with the test. When can police officers use deadly force? Police officers can generally use deadly force in two circumstances. The most common is when they feel they are threatened with a a use of force or a threat of force that would cause serious bodily harm or death. It could be that they're threatened. It could be that another person is threatened. And the other is when someone's fleeing a dangerous crime, when someone is engaged in a crime of violence and are fleeing, and the only way to subdue them is to use deadly force against them. You can shoot someone for running away from a crime? Police officers don't always use force in the circumstances And not every state permits the full range of force allowed under the Supreme Court case law. But under a case, Tennessee versus Garner, the court said you cannot shoot a non-dangerous fleeing felon in the back of the head, but you can shoot a dangerous fleeing felon in the back of the head. And what makes somebody dangerous in the court's view is the circumstance in which the person is threatening or using serious force against an officer or another person and therefore is actively dangerous in the moment. But the Supreme Court suggests that there's another form of dangerousness, which is being suspected of a violent crime. And according to the Supreme Court's case law, you could shoot that person as they run away. If you're chasing down a suspect who's accused of a terrible crime, uh, let's say a violent rape, but has never seen his day in court, may in fact be the wrong person. In an arrest, if that person flees, a police officer is constitutionally justified to use deadly force against the fleeing suspect? It would appear so under Tennessee versus Garner. Police departments cringe 
police officers and communities cringe in the same way that you're cringing. If you think about, you know, one of the big checks on the use of force, community sentiment matters too. You know, police departments face the court of public opinion probably more often than they face federal courts bringing constitutional cases. And so those kinds of uses of force are certainly conflict with many people's gut reaction about when we should be using force. And as a result, usually when when officers use deadly force, the claim is that they believed that they or someone else was threatened. And usually it's that the officer himself faced the threat of serious bodily harm or death. Let me also get on the record. We're going to be talking about police abuse and we're going to be talking about failures in policing and the system that's in place to to hold uh, bad policing accountable. That's in no way to suggest that all police officers are bad or that, you know, police as a group don't do so many important and critical things to keep us safe. So I just want to want to get that on the record, but we will be asking tough questions and I know that you have done some some real tough thinking on it from both the academic side and when you had spent your your days in justice actually pursuing crimes. One thing I would say about that is despite the fact that I spent uh, many years as a prosecutor including on policing cases, I actually think that criminal prosecution is not the best way. It's it's sometimes important because there's a respect that criminal prosecution shows for the victims as equal citizens, and I think it can be critical. But I don't think prosecution is the best way to handle most problems in policing. And I think focusing on the individual wrongdoer or the individual actor in policing is often a mistake. You know, policing is about systems. It's about the choices we make in terms of authorizing a behavior, but it's also the choices we make in structuring police departments, in tasking them with certain activities. And the problems we get are usually a result of institutions, not a result of bad people. You know, another area where police can play a very intrusive role in a citizen's life is just by making an arrest. What is constraining the officer from making excessive arrests or from bringing people in, disrupting, intervening, stopping their life, even if it's just for a few hours, without justification? The constitutional law requires that there be probable cause before an arrest, and probable cause is just an amount of individualized suspicion, amount of evidence we need to have that you committed a crime before the officer is permitted to arrest you. But that's not a very high barrier, and most states allow officers to use their discretion to arrest when they meet that standard and require a little more. I mean, in most cases, you're not required to have a warrant to make an arrest unless it's in a home. And so police officers have enormous discretion to conduct arrests. But just because uh, you, we reach the probable cause standard does not actually mean we need to arrest somebody. So what stops police from making unlawful arrests? Well, that probable cause standard as it's enforced, if they make an unlawful arrest, that a case will be dismissed. And if there's no probable cause, they could be sued for a wrongful arrest. But the bigger issue in policing is 
to me at least, is why make so many arrests at all? Even if we have probable cause that you committed some crime, and there are a lot of crimes, why does that mean we we need to take you into custody? Because as you point out, the costs of engaging in an arrest are really substantial to the individual, can might lose their job if they spend a night in jail, and it certainly might be traumatized by that experience and won't be home to take care of their kids. And there might be immigration consequences and there might be housing consequences. And so this is very disruptive. It's disruptive to the family. It's disruptive to communities. And especially in communities, there are over police and in communities that have a sense they're being discriminated against, then any arrest, even a justifiable arrest, is going to be further alienating. And so even lawful arrests can be seriously problematic. And one of the things that I've focused on in my work is asking questions about the costs of policing, even when it's legal, and encouraging communities and lawmakers to think about restricting activities that are more harmful and more unfair than the value that they bring to the table. A quick break for those who are earning MC Lee credit for this course. The code for this interview is 42915. Again, that's 42915. And now back to the interview. Let's talk about how police handle our vigorous and I say our, I mean uh, American citizens' vigorous use of their First Amendment. I wanted to move the conversation into a discussion of resistance or a discussion of protest. And here we're seeing police running up against Americans in sometimes violent manners. Let's talk about that. One of my favorite chapters in my new book, The Law of the Police, is on policing resistance. And I'm trying to bring together here the First Amendment law in the way that it regulates several different kinds of criticism of the police. Because one of the things that is interesting about police officers is that they get to regulate opposition to them. So when, you know, a bystander comes in and starts criticizing the police for making an arrest, sometimes it's a, the arrestee's mom who's saying, don't arrest him, don't arrest him, or trying to get in the way of that arrest. It's the police officer who gets to decide, at least in the first instance, whether that mom is going to get arrested as well, or whether her behavior is protected. And then courts later will tell us whether they made the right call. And, you know, similarly, in the protest environment. People protest many different things, but when they protest the police, then we've got this special layer of interest at stake, which is they're protesting the very people who are now deciding how thoroughly their First Amendment rights are going to get exercised. And the same thing's true when we're talking about recording the police. You know, it's police officers who decide, at least in the first instance, whether recording is too close to the line. Um, So courts tell us what the rules are in those contexts, but I'm very interested in the project of policing resistance and resisting the police in turn. Well, I think you've given us a great roadmap for the next, you know, 15 minutes or so. Why don't we start with the example of one person being arrested and then others in their community or in their family raising their voice in opposition to that How does the court view the ability for individuals to speak up or to 
protest what might be seen as an unlawful arrest. The Supreme Court has made it clear that purely verbal resistance, purely verbal opposition to the police is protected First Amendment speech. Police officers may never arrest someone for purely verbal opposition and communities which used to criminalize any kind of opposition or interference with arrests, even purely verbal, can't do so consistent with the First Amendment. And so we know that's protected. And by contrast, the Supreme Court has said that arresting somebody who interferes with an arrest is not impermissible under the First Amendment, which then raises the question about what is the line between opposition, verbal opposition and interference. If somebody is standing across the street, well, presumably that and shouting at the police officer, that's presumably verbal opposition. What if they're standing 10 feet away? What about six feet away? What about right behind an officer while he's trying to conduct an arrest? And the courts have found those questions far more more challenging. Police are sometimes quite aggressive about people who even who are only verbally opposing them. And sometimes they just break the First Amendment law and arrest people for, you know, what we'll call contempt of cop, which is simply being disrespectful or criticizing the police. But when even within the scope of the law, there's a difficulty at assessing what the line is between interference and criticism. Yeah, that's very interesting. And and when you say interfere, you know, my, the first thing that came to my mind would be, you know, oh, you know, maybe a, a desperate um, family member physically interfering. No, please don't take uh, him or her or trying to pull them away. But can interference be simply verbal? Can interference be, as you mentioned, maybe standing in the wrong place? Well, it's not entirely clear. You know, the Supreme Court has suggested that it's at least possible that some kinds of words basically function like acts. So imagine somebody is shouting in a police officer's ear as he is trying to question a suspect. Is that verbal criticism or is that interference. Those are the kinds of cases that have been a little bit bedeviling. And then the same is true of verbal criticism that happens at a close distance, not because it's loud, but because the police officer feels threatened by being surrounded by a crowd, for example, or even just having someone stand in between them and somebody they're trying to question or arrest. And so there is no clear, clear line. In fact, the case law is pretty messy in these areas because it's something that we really don't have a good standards for. You mentioned it, but what is contempt of cop or what is a contempt of cop arrest? That's not a legal term. That's what we generally call casually arrests that are made because somebody disrespects or criticizes the police. There are dozens and dozens of federal cases that involve somebody giving the finger to a police officer and getting arrested. Now, every police officer knows that that's protected speech. That's not a lawful arrest. But you know, you'll sometimes hear 
cops say casually, I can't give them a rap, but I can give them a ride, which is to say, I know this is not an arrest that will hold up because it's not illegal to give the finger to the police. But that kind of disrespect is something that some police officers in some departments are pretty intolerant of. And so contempt of cop is what we call a use of force or an arrest that is really retaliatory for criticism or disrespect. Isn't that illegal? Isn't that a crime in and of itself? Yes. No, good cops don't say that. (laughs) That's illegal. Retaliating against someone in legal terms, we could say retaliating against someone for exercising First Amendment rights is itself a violation of the First Amendment. Is there anything that you can say to a police officer that would rise to the level of, of something that would be arrest worthy? And I don't know whether I'm confusing my First Amendment limitations, but do fighting words apply to, to police officers? Is there something that you could just, well, that's just too darn offensive. You, of course, he's going to stop you. So that's a really good question. That's actually an open question under Supreme Court case law. The Supreme Court has clearly suggested that if there are fighting words, the standard with respect to police officers, the kind of opposition that police officers should expect, verbal opposition and criticism is greater than what an average person should expect. And they should be trained and prepared to face that kind of criticism for executing the state's authority. But What the court has never said is whether that means there are no words that would constitute fighting words against the police. And that and the lower courts haven't really clarified that issue either. I mean, it's not even clear whether there are fighting words that anyone should uh, respond to for purely verbal reasons. An antiquated notion that defending one's honor if, if certain words are spoken. Yeah. Yeah. Being called a bastard is not what it used to be. Yes. There's no question about that. So police officers are expected to have a higher threshold for that. But we don't know if that means there's no threshold at which they should exercise their power for purely verbal reasons. But if you ask me, I don't I think they should not exercise an arrest or certainly not a use of force would be inevitably illegal, but an arrest for purely verbal opposition. No, not okay. And no community should accept it. And most departments would consider that against policy, even if it's not against the law. Are there examples of arrests going the other way for the officers who committed the contempt of cop? We're using these terms loosely. Have police officers been held accountable for that type of abuse? So usually when we're talking about an illegal arrest, it's very, very rare for a police officer to be prosecuted for conducting an illegal arrest, if that's what you're talking about in terms of accountability. There are civil damages actions against officers for retaliatory arrests under the First Amendment. But just about two years ago, in 2019, the Supreme Court decided a case, Nieves versus Bartlett, in which it said, although an officer having probable cause is not an absolute bar to retaliatory arrest claims, if an officer does have probable cause to make an arrest, then the courts are very, very skeptical that the officer's motive was retaliatory. And since officers almost always can find probable cause to make some arrest, that doctrine, which requires that retaliatory arrest claims generally be for arrests that are on which there's no probable cause, is a real barrier to holding officers accountable in civil damages actions. 
I'm just envisioning the police stop uh, for a minor traffic violation. Maybe I did roll that stop. It may be breaking um, an actual law. And then if I behave rudely to the police officer or in a way that he or she perceives as rude, uh, maybe they could then retaliate with pretty good cover. Yes, the Supreme Court has one narrow exception, which is if similarly situated people are not arrested for that offense. And here the court's thinking about something like jaywalking, where almost no one is arrested for jaywalking, then uh, an arrest might be permissibly looked at as retaliatory. But in the situation you gave, where police officers occasionally make arrests for traffic offenses, but often do not, then it's going to be very hard to hold them accountable. And you're exactly right. The research supports the idea that police officers use more force and conduct more arrests against suspects who are disrespectful to them or who they perceive as disrespectful. And of course, individuals are more disrespectful to the police if they distrust the police and they believe that the police are unfair to them or their communities. And so you've got this problem in which we're permitting something that, you know, a kind of attention that the police actually are in part responsible for. For more legal explainers and interviews with the titans of law, visit TalksOnLaw.com. If you're earning MCLE for this interview, you can enter your confirmation code at TalksOnLaw.com slash MCLE podcast to get your certificate. Join us again soon for more cutting edge interviews on the California MCLE podcast.